Let me ask you a question. How, how willing are you to do business with God? As in, how willing are you when you come into his presence and when you approach him to go, okay, God, I'm, I'm, willing, to, I'm willing to hear from you. I'm willing to obey. I'm willing to follow you. Because as God continues to show himself, he, I think he will continue to do that in so many ways because he desires so much to reveal himself to us so that we can find life. And sometimes the way that he does that is through some struggles and some difficulties and some challenges and some hard times. And in the midst of everything that we're seeing in the book of Daniel, if you want to follow along with me, we're in Daniel chapter 4 today, we continue to see God demonstrate his sovereignty through the lives of these individuals that we get to follow along with in the book. And I've said this a few times in this series. The book is titled Daniel, but it's not a book about Daniel. It's a book about God. It's a book about God's sovereignty and how we continue to see God working, even though all of God's children and the Israelites have been taken in captivity and put in Babylon. They're in a place that they don't want to be. Uh, they're in a, surrounded in the culture they don't want to be in. They're having to do things they don't want to do. And yet in the midst of all that, they're trying to find a way to honor God in the midst of that. And so one of the underlying messages for us in this book is I can trust that God is in control. We continue to see that over and over and over and over in the book. I can trust that God is in control. No matter what I see around me, no matter what I think is going on, no matter if I think I see a train wreck coming or I see something happening that I don't think will be good, I can trust that God is in control. Let me show you some examples that we've already looked at in this book, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, it starts right there. It says, the Lord, it starts the whole, the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him along with some of the vessels from the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. It starts off by saying, it looks like this great king came in and vanquished a nation and took them all into captivity. But when you look at it from the perspective of Daniel, he goes, no, God did this. My faith has never wavered that God is bigger than any of this situation. So for this to have happened, God must have allowed this. Now, you go try to resolve why you think that is and how we think this is going to work out and good. But I've pointed this out a few times. Daniel lived his entire life in captivity serving foreign kings. That was... That was his lot in life, and yet he still chose to acknowledge that the Lord is at work doing all this. In Daniel 1.9, we see God granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Daniel didn't do it himself. God gave this to him. So God is fully in control. Daniel interprets a dream and gets rewarded for interpreting uh, dreams. And so we, we see God working in that. We see that when Daniel determined that he wasn't going to defile himself and he was going to continue uh, to just eat vegetables and not doing that for any other reason other than to honor the Lord. Not only did God honor Daniel, but he honored his friends. It says in Daniel 1.17, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding and every kind of literature and wisdom. And Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. Who did that? God gave them vision. And it says in Daniel 2.28, when he interpreted the dream, before he tells Nebuchadnezzar about it, he says, there is a God in heaven 
who reveals mysteries, and he's the one that's letting King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came to your mind as you lay in bed were these, and then Daniel goes on to interpret that vision. How did Daniel do that? Because God gave him the vision. And last week we looked at Daniel chapter 3, and we looked at the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I just want to point this out again. They weren't trying to make a stand. They weren't seeking out some social injustice that they felt they needed to right or wrong or do this. These were men who were seeking to serve the Lord while they're still in this captivity and all these things that are going on around them. And there happened to be a line that they came to as they're trying to serve the Lord and as they're trying to live their life, they simply didn't bow when the king said to bow. And, and as that pans out, God puts them in front of the king who gets very angry with them for not bowing. And I love that their answer was, hey, you know what? If God chooses to save us, if God doesn't, we're still not going to do this. Because this is, this is something that we're going to do. They didn't go, the king made an edict and they ran to him and they yelled at the king and they threw things at the king and they got everybody together and made a thing on Facebook about it. They just were living their life trying to honor the Lord. And this is what happens. And at the end of it, look at what happens. After they're rescued from the fire, it says that Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own. And that kind of brings us to today. The story turns for us to take a little bit closer of a look at Nebuchadnezzar. Now, here's what we know of Nebuchadnezzar so far. He's a very powerful Man, at this point in time, all the known world is under his rule. And yet, as he continues to try to do things to dictate the lives of these young Hebrew men, God continues to intervene and do incredible things to demonstrate that, Nebuchadnezzar, as much as you would like to think that you're in control, you're not the one in control of these things. And we come to chapter 4, and this is how it begins. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar writes a letter to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth. May your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are his miracles, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Whoa, whoa. hold on a minute. This is the guy who's throwing people in furnaces, who's getting angry about dreams that he's having, who's doing all this kind of stuff to him, and now he comes to this point. We're going to look a little bit deeper into that today, but there's, a, there's a, something that happened in his life that got him there. And it was being surrounded by these people who were just choosing to try to serve the Lord. And, and we need to understand that no matter what situation that we're put in in life, how we stay committed to God makes a huge difference. And so we should be encouraged that I must remain committed to God without compromise, without compromise. Not going out looking for reasons to be upset about the world, but just living for the Lord without compromise. It says in Daniel 1.8, right? Daniel determined, Daniel determined that he was not going to defile himself. Daniel said, look, before I ever get into any situation, here's, I'm going to honor the Lord with what I'm going to do. And so he chose not to defile himself with the king's food or the wine he drank. And so he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. He didn't just blatantly go out 
and tell people what he was doing. He wanted to seek the Lord, and then he asked permission even to do these things. And it, we see picture over and over of Daniel working with tact and discretion and all of these ways to honor the Lord and honor the king all at the same time. Like I already pointed out in Daniel chapter 3, the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if the God we serve exists. This is the words that they said to Nebuchadnezzar. If the God we serve exists, he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. You see, that's faith without compromise. That's trust in the person of God, not the works of God. And so many people right now have a faith that's based on the work that God does in their life. And they, and they see it as some sort of system. If it's not working, then I must have done something to offend God or God must be mad at me and he's judging stuff. And that's not it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, God's in charge of this whole thing. We're going to have faith that doesn't compromise. And however he wants to do this is fine with us. That's how we're going to live our life. We need to remain committed to God without compromise. And all of those things that Nebuchadnezzar witnessed, and I'm sure more, brought him to this place where he writes those words that begin chapter 4. But here's where I want us to focus today. What's my story? What's my story? How do I have a faith in God. What's gotten me to this place? Where have I walked and I've seen God's work through the highs and the lows, or I've seen the evidence of God's handiwork around me that would cause me to stop and go, okay, there must be something going on with God that's bigger than me, and I need to acknowledge his greatness. Now, before we all get excited about Nebuchadnezzar, I'll let you do your homework and study and figure out where he ended up. Because Babylon was very polytheistic, meaning they just believed in many gods. And, and it could be that Nebuchadnezzar got to a place where he finally bent his knee and repented and said, the Lord is Lord and, and I'm going to worship him. Or it could be that he just went, okay, your God's bigger than all the other gods I serve. And so we're going to add him to my gods and that's where it's going to be. We don't know. This is the last we hear of Nebuchadnezzar in this, in this book. Is right here in chapter 4. But we at least know he got to this point where he acknowledged that God is at work around him. And we see him doing incredible things in the lives of people who follow him. So here's where he ends up. He tells this story. He had another dream. And as he has this dream, this time he doesn't keep it to himself. He shares the dream with his wise men. And those wise men can't figure out the interpretation of the dream. And so at this point in time, I love it. He finally just goes, okay, we'll get Daniel. The guy who I call Belshazzar after my God, but who has the spirit of the gods in him. Let's just bring Daniel in here because I know Daniel will be able to figure this out because something's going on with Daniel that's not going on with anybody else. So let's get him in here. And so Daniel comes in and he interprets the dream. And this is the dream. There's this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has a big tree in the middle of the earth and it grew real tall all the way up to the sky. It had good fruit on it. Everybody found rest under it. The animals were under it. And it was all this shade. But then all of a sudden there's this watcher from heaven is how they describe it in the dream. And this watcher from heaven comes down and says, okay, cut the tree down, but leave a stump. I'm paraphrasing and shortening it if you're trying to follow along. Good luck. The watcher from heaven comes down and says, cut the tree down, but leave a stump. We're going to do something with that. And then he goes on in the dream. After he says, leave a stump, he says, then let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human. Let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the watchers. So what's happening here 
is that Nebuchadnezzar saying this tree gets cut down and all these things happen. I don't know what happens, Daniel. And says, Daniel all of a sudden is about to interpret this dream and he gets this look of distress on his face that Nebuchadnezzar notices and goes, go ahead, Daniel. Just tell me what it is. And Daniel begins to interpret the dream. He said, Nebuchadnezzar, it's a dream about you. And you're the big tree. You've done a lot of great things. And a lot of people look at you with a lot of respect. But you need to understand that God's going to send his watcher. And if you don't repent and acknowledge that God is God and you are not, then God's going to cut you down and send you, down, send you out away from all that you have built until the time that you will acknowledge that God is God. We pick it up in verse 28. All this happened. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, so God was patient with him from the time that he had the dream, and Daniel had told him, hey, you need to repent. But then at the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence with my vast power and for my majestic glory? While the words were still in his mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You'll be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, and you'll feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone he wants. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. It goes on. He says, but at the end of those days, seven years. You need to let that sink in. Because so many times we read God's word. And we just go to the next sentence and we go, oh, look, it just happened at the next sentence. You know, not everything resolves itself in 30 minutes like the sitcoms we watch, right? Seven years later, at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. And then I praised the Most High and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. Because he does what he wants with the army of heaven. And the inhabitants of the earth, there is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my sanity returned to me and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens because all his works are true and his ways are just. And he's able to humble those who walk in pride. Now what's my story? You see, there's Nebuchadnezzar's story. And I have to admit this. I used to, I used to go and, and hear people share their testimonies. And I used to think, I have the most boring testimony in the world. Not that I was perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I can bring a litany of people up here to confess to that. But I did not have one of those testimonies that it was just this incredible, oh, wow, he was down this path and God came in and rescued this and he had done all these things. And mine, to me, it was just kind of normal slash boring testimony. And I used to be upset because I would, you know, you kind of want to go, I wish I had more of an exciting story to tell you other than this. But can I just tell you something? 
I'm so thankful for a boring testimony. I've lived enough life now to go, I am very thankful for a boring testimony. For one that goes, I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I've hurt many people in my life. I've been hurt by many people in life. I've said things I regret. I've done things I regret. I'm not saying that I I'm, I'm, haven't done anything wrong by any stretch of the imagination. But you look at Nebuchadnezzar's story and he's like, I'm so prideful he turned me into a cow eagle and sent me out to the field for seven years. I'm like, well, that's kind of exciting. I don't have anything like that, you know. But we have a story. And, and here's where Nebuchadnezzar's story kind of landed with me this week. I don't want to learn the hard way. I'd rather just tune my ear to God and go, I don't want to have to have God prove to me his greatness. Nebuchadnezzar got to see so many incredible things. And I bet if we stopped to think about it and we just step back from our life, each of us could probably look at a perspective and go, you know, I, I can begin to see how God's moving in, in things that I didn't think God was moving in before. I can begin to see God's hand working in my life and in the lives of those around me. So let's talk this morning about how I can keep from learning the hard way. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this. I'm going to make my disclaimer once. You're not going to like this. But we're going to talk about the truth of God's word, of how to keep from learning the hard way. And if you're willing to accept and do business with God, the truth of God's word, it will lead you to life. But it doesn't mean that it's easy. That's why I wanted to point out seven years. It wasn't just the next sentence. It took seven years to get through Nebuchadnezzar's thick skull that God was God and going to do what he wanted to do. So we want to put ourselves in a place where we go, God, I want, I, want to, I want to get that through now. I don't want to have to walk through this stuff. How do I get to this place? In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, it's not on your outline, but it's just free for you today. It says, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. That's what the writer of Proverbs put. And so we need to look about what it means to, to, learn, to, to keep from having to learn life lessons the hard way. So here it is. Acknowledge my need for repentance. Acknowledge my need for repentance. Repentance isn't one of those warm, fuzzy words that we like to talk about in church. Today's world. You know, you don't gather people together and go, hey, you got a sin problem. You really need to deal with that. And the way you need to deal with it is stop it. And the way you need to stop it is admit it. And the way you need to admit it is to the people you've hurt. And, and we need to go on with this, and you really need to repent. And it's not just between you and God, it's between other things. I need to acknowledge my need for repentance. It's not something we like to talk about. But there's something that we see in this story. True repentance includes another word we don't like, and that is some humiliation. You ever been humiliated? I got both hands up. I've been humiliated. I don't like it. But I can tell you this. Most every time that I've been humiliated, there's been a huge life lesson for me to learn. And if I choose to have that type of humiliation and let God speak to me through it, then I can learn some things and I can be a better person. And I'm not talking about that humiliation like, ooh, you got burned. That, not that type of humiliation. Okay? I'm talking about that true deep down in your heart where you begin to realize something like, Nebuchadnezzar's realizing of, oh, there's something bigger than me at work in this world. It's this humiliation that brings you to this incredible realization 
of the grandness and the goodness of God and it puts in perspective who you are and it brings into focus, and follow me on this, I know it's not fun, it brings into focus your failure and your sin in such a way that it hurts. That, that, that you see how big God is and you go, man, I'm, I'm just, I'm not there. Nebuchadnezzar was humiliated. All of a sudden this grand king who was the most powerful man in the world, in a moment God said, let me prove to you that you're not in charge. And it was done. And seven years later, he was able to admit that there's something happening in this world that's bigger than him. When we are humbled, it has a purpose. And that purpose is repentance. When we're humbled, it should lead us to repentance. But oftentimes when we're humbled, we hit a crossroad. And that crossroad leads us to one of two places, honestly. We either choose to repent or we choose to rebel. It's one of those two things. Because I can tell you this from experience. You get humbled and humiliated, and it's like I either have to learn the magic words, I was wrong, and start living with that way, or I'm going to double down on my behavior. And I'm going to start making an excuse and justification, and well, it was a bad day, or this happened, or man, did you see that? Well, I didn't know that, or this is it. Instead of just coming to the place where I can say, I was wrong. And it's one of the greatest things that we can learn in our life because it will lead us to life when we can learn to humble ourselves to the point of admitting clearly when we are wrong about things and that God is in control and I am not. And man, I had it wrong and I need to get myself in line with God. But hear me on this. I want you to really hear me clearly on this. You cannot wrong your brother and sister and then only seek forgiveness from God. That is an abuse of the grace of God. Nebuchadnezzar wrote a letter to the world. I was wrong. And the reason Nebuchadnezzar wrote a letter to the world is because he sinned in front of the world. So hear me, we're not going to put a microphone up here at the end of the service and have everybody walk up one by one and publicly start confessing our sins out here to one another because that's not how we've all sinned. But I believe you cannot harm your brother and sister in Christ or harm other people in this world and then just go to God and go, God, would you forgive me of that? I believe that is an abuse of the grace of God. I believe if we want to find life, we're going to trust God's word and we're going to do like Nebuchadnezzar and goes, you know what, I was wrong. I don't care who knows it because some things need to be made right. And when we have that type of repentance in our life, which says, I'm not going to do these things anymore. I'm going to actually do things in my life that keep me from doing those things anymore. And one of the greatest things that I can do to keep me from walking down the same road that I have all the time is go to people and say, I was wrong when I went down there. Would you keep me from walking down that road again? And it will lead you to life. We don't know if Nebuchadnezzar's repentance led to salvation, but we do know this. He wrote a letter 
that said, I was wrong, God is good. I was wrong, God is good. And at the end of his letter, what did he write? He is able to humble those who walk in pride. There's one thing that keeps all of us from saying those magic words to our brothers and sisters, I was wrong. It's pride. That's it. Because God's word is clear that he's in control and he's in charge. And when his word leads us to live with a ministry of reconciliation, then that means when we repent, it's not just forgiveness. It is saying that I am no longer going to do that. I'm going to admit my wrong. I'm going to build things in my life so I don't go there anymore. Now, look, Romans 3.23 is very clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Raise your hand if you're all. But not everybody's going to do something about it. And that's the difference between those who find life in Christ and those who just live in themselves and their pride and they never see the fullness of God. Nebuchadnezzar over and over and over and over saw God work and he acknowledged the work of God but never came to the place where he said, okay, I'm going to start following on this way. Every time it was, I praise the God of Daniel or I praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or I'm going to acknowledge that God, you're bigger than me because you turned me into an eagle cow. But never did he... Just say, okay, God, I, I need to make these things right. And it's the last we hear of him, so we don't know where this led. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So absolutely, yes, we've all sinned. We all need forgiveness. But I'm talking about if you want to find life in Christ, there is a way to live. We can simply stop at forgiveness and, and know that God loves us, or we can pursue life. Let me just... Put it maybe in, in more direct terms for us. You're going, how can you get more direct, Pastor? Okay. I, I have three, I'm one of four. Math doesn't work in my head sometimes. I'm, I'm the third boy, one sister. She's a princess and it did no wrong. Okay, so we have that. But me and my brother are the youngest and we're closest together. And somehow when we grew up, we always had a house that had one less bedroom than children. And somehow when we grew up, me and my brother just next to me were always the ones in there. And we fought, fought with a capital F. I got scars to prove it. Last time I fought my brother, I thought he was sick. He wiped the floor with me. I went note to self, don't fight brother anymore. I mean, he's three years older than me and it's like, okay, he, he's got it down. Now we, we fought. And here's what I remember about some of those times when we would do stuff wrong and mom and dad would catch us. It wasn't, y'all need to stop that. It was, come here. Did you have these parents? Come here. Tell your brother you're sorry. I'm sorry. Do you have that, that moment? Tell me you're sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. Look at your brother and tell him, sorry. No, look at him. I'm sorry. Now tell him what you did wrong. What is it that you did wrong? Tell him what you did. And they, they, they made you do it. Why? Because you need to own it. Because when you have to own it and you have to look at the person that you wronged in the eye, it does something in you that makes you never want to do it again. When you just go to God for forgiveness or go tell mom, it's easy for me to tell mom I'm wrong when I harmed my brother. It's hard for me to go to my brother and go, I was wrong and I harmed you and it's my bad. And there's nothing I can do about it now other than ask your forgiveness. 
and everything gets put in their hands and I lose control and pride. Because I have to humble myself and admit I was wrong. But I'm going to tell you something. I want you to hear me on this. There's life in that. There's life in that like you've never had before. There's freedom in that like you've never had before. There's peace in that like you've never had before. When you lay down your pride and you go and you repent and you say, I've got to make this right the best I can the things that I have wronged. It leads you to life. So I don't say it up here angry. I say it because I want you to have life. I want you to have that freedom. And I can also tell you from experience the freedom that comes from looking somebody in the eye and going, I was wrong. And man, and you just, this freedom happens and, and reconciliation happens often. Not all the time. Because sometimes I was so bad to people that I lost the ability to reconcile fully with them. And yet I'm still the pastor here. I just want you to know that. But here's the deal. We, we've got a choice to make. I'm going to choose to either accept my pride or I'm going to choose to follow God's word. And so I pray that you choose to follow God's word. You follow God's word, not our feelings, not our past, not, not these other things. Romans 10, 10 says, one believes with the heart resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. For scripture says, listen to this, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Since there's no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God's goal is not to humiliate us or to shame us. God's goal is to give us life. And sometimes he puts us in positions where we have to swallow our pride, lay down, humble ourselves so that we can find life. And if we choose to follow God's word, then you will begin to find that type of life. But to do that, you have to do this, trust God. You have to trust God, not your experience, not your knowledge, not your circumstances, not your past, not your thoughts, not what you heard someone say, not anything else. You have to trust God because the writer of Proverbs also tells us this. There's a way that seems right to a person. That's every one of us. But its end is the way to death. When we sit here and wrestle and debate with God, well, I think I have a better way that we can handle this. That's going to lead to death. When we just humble ourselves and trust God's word and acknowledge, God, your way is right, my way is wrong, and I want to find life by following you, then that's when we begin to find life. I love each of you dearly. And sometimes God's word leads us to say some things that are true but not fun. But every time it leads us to life if we'll accept it. And I've lived everything that I've said today. And I want to be the first person to confess God's word will lead us to life. And he will lead us through things that we think are hard. And he will lead us through things that we think are possible. He will lead us through things that are embarrassing and humiliating and hurtful. And he will break us at times so that we can find how big and how awesome he is. And we can find life in following him. I'm not trying to make light of everything. But I just pray you don't have to be a cow eagle to figure that out. I pray we just figure that out on our own. Not only is God always in control, God is always right. God's always right. That's why we can trust his word. And that's why we can trust him. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to bow your heads for a moment.